Our Father and our God, we pray that you will quiet our hearts before you, and indeed that we will find ourselves bowing in your presence, bowing before your word, bowing before your lordship, and in so bowing that we might find peace beyond all comprehension, that we might sense forgiveness, that we might know that we are reconciled through the death of Christ on the cross and we belong to you, giving us peace and joy beyond our belief. May that be our experience today as we turn to your word in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. There is something well known uh, as a compulsive, obsessive, disorder, COD. And uh, this can be connected with many things, but one of the obsessions is actually with order itself. Individuals who must have everything in its proper place. And if you want to mess with them, just move things around. So you go in the kitchen and you put things where they're not supposed to be and change drawers. You go to their study desk and uh, again, rearrange, or perhaps even in the workshop. And I just want you to know, we don't like that. (laughs) I've heard of people who arrange their closets by the colors of their shirts. I did that just once. But you know, there is a good word for order because God is a God of order, right? And when he created this world, it was perfectly in order with proper balance. And then man sinned and the world fell into disorder. Sin has ruined so much of God's perfect plan And by his grace and the person of Jesus Christ, he is recovering what has been lost and restoring. That is what we love to see in our own lives personally and in our world all around us. So we come now to the study of the book of Romans, which we have begun. We are in chapter one. And I want to remind you of the verse 17. Paul, in his introduction, talked about the importance of the gospel and then his desire to share the gospel with them and then gave them the essence of the gospel. For he said, in the gospel, there is a righteousness of God revealed. It is God's righteousness, not man. It is a righteousness he has won and he reveals. God the righteous, which simply means God is always right. The judge of all the earth shall do right. And what he does is right because he is God. And that righteousness has been revealed from faith or by faith from first to last, meaning it's all by faith. And then he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and says that the A righteous person is righteous by faith, 
and shall live by his faith. But then immediately we come to verse 18 where it says the wrath of God is being revealed. So you've got the righteousness of God revealed and the wrath of God revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. The wrath of God revealed. What a sobering subject. We often judge God's anger by our own, which is not a pretty sight. The embarrassing characteristics of our wild passion and uncontrolled outbursts, our violent speech, hostile actions, and our vindictiveness and desire for revenge are all part of man's anger, but God knows nothing of that. His anger is perfectly pure. I came across a wonderful article by A.W. Tozer. Tozer wrote in the 60s for the Alliance Monthly, and then they took those articles and put them in a book. I want to read a rather extended quote, but I think a very helpful quote on the wrath of God. Tozer says, it is rare that there is anything good in human anger. The man of evil, evil temper is unpredictable and dangerous and usually shunned by people of goodwill. But there is a strong tendency among religious leaders in these days, mind you, 1966, to disassociate anger from the divine character. This is understandable, but in light of God's complete revelation, it is inexcusable. In the first place, God needs no defense. Those teachers who are forever trying to make God over in their own image might be better employed seeking to make themselves over in God's image. The present refusal of so many to accept the doctrine of the wrath of God is part of a larger pattern of unbelief in the scriptures themselves. And when a person questions the inspiration of Scripture, a curious, get this, a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter, he judges the Word of God instead of letting the Word of God judge him. Whatever is stated clearly, and even only once in the Holy Scripture, may be accepted as sufficiently well-established to invite the faith of all believers. But when we discover that the Spirit of God speaks of the wrath of God about 300 times in the Bible, we might as well make up our minds either to accept the doctrine or reject the Scriptures outright. If the Bible is wrong 300 times on one subject, who can trust it in any other? Yes, the wrath of God is a reality. His anger is as holy as his love, and there is no incompatibility. To understand God's wrath, we must view it in the light of his holiness. This is key. God is holy and has made holiness to be the moral condition necessary for the health of the universe. 
Whatever is holy is healthy, and evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness. And whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, he must destroy whatever would destroy it. Every wrathful judgment of God in the history of man has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are inseparably united. Not only is it right for God to display his anger against sin, it seems impossible to understand how he could do otherwise. There's more in that brilliant article that establishes the fact that if you truly love one thing, you must truly hate its enemy. If you love health, you hate sickness. If you love holiness, you hate sin. And so the wrath of God is being revealed. But I want you to note in the first few verses, and just actually the first two verses, and I'm not going to have all of the verses on the screen for you, but if we could see verse 18 and 19, and maybe you could see your own Bible or look at a Bible in the P-Rack in front of you, it might be helpful. You'll notice that in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against godlessness and wickedness, against the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known by God has been made plain. Actually, I think it's helpful to reverse the order of the word revealed, suppress, and know. Because that's actually what is happening. First, there is the unveiling of the knowledge of God. And then there is the rejection of man, the response of man to suppress the truth of the knowledge of God. And then there is, as a consequence the revelation of his wrath. So let's do that. First of all, let's look at the revelation of God. That is, God is unveiling himself to show us who he is. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, these people who are suppressing the truth, because God made it plain. Now, it's true that the finite mind of fallen creatures is limited, and what we can know about God is limited. But he says twice that it is plain, and in verse 20, it's clearly seen. God has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us. Think about it. If he didn't do that, we would have no knowledge of him. But in his mercy, he tells us who he is. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse. So since creation, by creation, the invisible God has been made visible. Not everything about God, not all the knowledge of God, but enough knowledge to make us accountable. Creation shows us God's eternal power, 
right? And when you contemplate creation, you, you have to also understand the skill of design and goodness and beauty. Those stand out as we look at our world, even though it's affected by the fall. The visible created world reveals the invisible creator God like a painting reveals the personality of an author or a novel, uh, the personality of the writer. As was read so beautifully a moment ago from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is what we call general revelation. It's general because it goes out to everyone at all times. It's general because it's found in the natural order and creation of things as opposed to supernatural like the inspiration of the scriptures of the incarnation of the Son of God. Verse 2 of Psalm 19, day after day, creation is speaking and night after night, it's revealing knowledge and there's no place on planet Earth where their speech and their words and their voice is not heard. And there is enough in that to tell people that God is powerful and God is good and God is great. The classic arguments formulated by Thomas Aquinas to prove the existence of God are now somewhat out of vogue but they do remind us exactly what Romans 1 is telling us, that the skill and goodness and power of God, his beauty and balance, the intricacy and intelligibility of the creation are all there. Yes, it is an argument from design to a designer. A well-known surgeon said, I am filled with the same humility when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night. The coordination of the complex activities of the cell all show common purpose and an inner working unity of purpose. It's the scientific part of me that is the best evidence, shows the best evidence of ultimate purpose, both in the microcosm and in the macrocosm. Acts 17, God who made the world and everything in it has done so, so that people would seek him, for in him we live and move and have our being. And creation tells us not only that he is, creation tells us something of who he is. And nobody can plead innocence because no one can plead ignorance. God has revealed himself. And that's why in any culture all around the world there is some recognition of a God. Pultark said, you may find cities without walls or literature or kings or houses or wealth or money without gymnasia or theaters, but no one has ever seen a city without temples and gods, for they know that he is there. 
That's the revelation of God. But now we go to verse 21 and we see how man responds to all of this. We'll call this the rejection of God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, and by the way, that word knowledge is seen four times in this text at the end of Romans 1. First was the knowledge made plain. Now it's the knowledge suppressed. And then it will be the knowledge devalued. And finally, the knowledge defied. Here is the rejection of God by suppressing the truth. What does it, do, what does it mean to suppress the truth? Although they knew God, they would not recognize him as God. Nor would they give him thanks. Two things certainly that should flow from the contemplation of the universe. To suppress is to hold down, to stifle, to silence, not to give God's truth the light of day, to resist with great determination. But when you push God down, you raise man up. And that's what our culture has done. Frederick Godet said to glorify God as God means to draw from the contemplation of his work the distinct view of the divine order and then in a way of adoration to bow before this sublime being and we could add to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. To glorify and with gratitude to lift up his name. Notice, it says, as they put God down and don't glorify him or give him thanks, their thinking becomes futile. And their hearts, their foolish hearts, are darkened. A fool is a person who willfully makes moral decisions contrary to the creator. The fool has said in his heart, Psalm 14, verse 1, there is no God. It's repeated again in Psalm 53, in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and they are corrupt, and their ways are vile, and there is no one who does what is good. Claiming to be superior in wisdom, they actually are foolish. The knowledge of God should lead to us giving him glory with gratitude. But the rejection of God leads to the inability to reason and hearts that are dark so they cannot see. And so what does the man do with this rejection? Verse 23. They exchange the glory of immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They go into idolatry. It's the book of Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other, no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth or beneath the earth, or in the waters below, you shall not 
bow down to them and worship them. And what is mankind doing? Exchanging. Things are out of order. They're exchanging the perfect order. We're going to take God off his throne and we're going to put man there. Or maybe an animal there. Or maybe even a reptile. And that will become our God. Many of you have toured the ancient wonders of Rome and Greece. You've gone into the museums of Egypt, and magnificent things are found there. But what we must realize is that much of this magnificence was man's tribute to himself and an insult to Almighty God. The deification of man is idolatry. Now, we may not bow down before statues, But the cultural idolatry of the West is our modern obsession with self, wealth, fame, power. Sin is selfishness. And if we will not recognize God is God, then we elevate ourselves to his position and exchange the divine order. Man was made in the image of God. Now, man is doing all he can to remake God in his own image so as to control him. Copernicus, the great Polish astronomer, was studying the heavens, and he gradually came to the conclusion that the earth was not the static center around which the rest of the universe revolved, Rather, the earth was a moving planet and revolved itself around the sun. But he was reluctant to publish those findings because he knew his contemporaries would strongly reject. For most of them were under the conviction that man was the center of everything that exists and everything revolves around him. Is that not a proper view of our modern culture? To be told otherwise, whether by an astronomer or a theologian, that you are not the center of the universe, but God is, creates a storm and poses a great problem for modern man because our significance is in ourself. And we now come to the revelation of wrath. So the revelation of God, something known about him, it's plain, it's clear. We can even understand he's an eternal God with power, that he's a God of skill and goodness, a God of wisdom, and all of that should cause us to bow down before him and give him glory and give him gratitude. But instead, we don't recognize him as God. We suppress the truth about God. We walk on him. And worship our images and call ourselves wise when we are but fools. And so what does God do? Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. You said, I thought that the wrath of God was coming in the future. It is. Read the book of the Revelation. Or even in Romans chapter 2, we'll get to there someday 
Because of your stubbornness, Paul says, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So there is a present disclosure of the wrath of God as well as a final unveiling of God's wrath. But now Paul talks about this present disclosure of the wrath of God by repeating a terrible phrase three times over. God gave them up. Look at verse 24. This is Paul's understanding of the wrath of God being at the present time revealed. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He doesn't go into detail here as to what that is, but it is simply the general sexual immorality of the day. I grew up in the 60s, and it was called the sexual revolution, and not a great time to go through your teen years. God gave them over. It was not fire and brimstone wrath. It was God unleashing his anger against sin quietly by handing sinners over to themselves, allowing the inevitable process of cause and effect to take place. John Ziegler said, this wrath operates not by God's intervention, but precisely by his not intervening by letting men and women go their own selfish and stubborn and sinful way. You want to try this? Go ahead. And the consequences are judgment in and of themselves. The history of the world confirms that idolatry is the first step toward immorality. A false god, false image of God, leads to a false understanding of sex. And Paul does not tell us what kind of immorality has his mind in verse 24, except that it degrades the body one with another. And illicit sex always dehumanizes. Because that is out of order. It's not what God intended. Sex in marriage as God intended ennobles. Illicit sex degrades. And that is built into creation. And to go against the order is to incur the judgment. William Barclay, the historian, said... It might seem that this passage is the work of some almost uh, hysterical moralist who is exaggerating the contemporary situation and painting it in colors of rhetoric hyperbole. It describes a situation of degeneracy of morals almost without uh, parallel in human history. But there is nothing that Paul said that the Greeks and Roman writers did not say themselves about the age in which they lived. You see, first there was the exchanging of the glory of God for images. And now, verse 25, 
Second time the word exchange is used, they are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And they're worshiping and serving creative, created things instead of the creator, the one who made them. And Paul found dealing with the depths of human depravity so distasteful, he's obligated to simply go into his own doxology. The creator who is forever to be praised, amen. Did you notice that God should be glorified and thanked, verse 21, and forever praised, verse 25? That's the only right response to the holy God has revealed himself to us. God gave them over. There's another giving over, the second time this phrase is used in verse 26. Because of this, and notice the logic, verse 24, therefore, verse 26, because of this, verse 28, furthermore, verse 26 says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Same sex is called unnatural and shameful and everything is out of order. It does not mean that there cannot be a loving relationship with two people in a same-sex situation. It does not mean that at all. It does not mean that it is the worst sin in the world. For the sin that is mentioned here, the out of order going against God's plan, is on the same level with a list of other sins we'll see in just a moment. But God's perfect order is not being followed and the consequences flow from the action of rebellion. In Matthew 19, God said, haven't you read? Jesus said, haven't you read? At the beginning, the creator made them male and female. That's from Genesis 1, made in his image, male, female. Verse 5, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. So here's God's ordered plan prior to the fall of Genesis 3. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. John Stott put it this way. God created humankind, male and female. God instituted marriage as a heterosexual union. And what God has united, we have no liberty to separate. Our problem is that we have a rough time taking a stand against a person's moral behavior without hating the person as well. James Edwards said it should be noted that homophobia, fear or hatred of homosexuals, is itself a sin just as bad as the greed and the gossips that are mentioned in the following verses. 
Now, you will be called homophobic if you say that same-sex relationships are not according to God's order. But let it be said, it is not true. May it never be said that you hate those who don't know Christ, but we must stand for the truth of Christ. And that's a hard thing to do in this world where everything seems to going in the opposite direction. God gave them over, verse 24. God gave them over, verse 26. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so they devalue the knowledge of God. It's not worthwhile to even let it take a place in my mind God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what they ought not to do. Verse 9, 29 says, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. Here's a list of 21 different categories. It almost defies uh, trying to understand how they mesh together. But the list shows a lot of things that we love. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And get this, they invent ways of doing evil. (laughs) They disobey their parents And verse 31 says, they have no understanding, they have no fidelity, they have no love, because love comes from God, and they have no mercy. This indictment upon our society is Paul's attempt to show why we need the gospel, And Paul is going to go from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, to show that Gentiles, basically what we've read at the end of chapter 1, Gentiles are sinners. And in chapter 2, the moralists, be they Gentiles or Jews, are sinners. And then the Jews who think themselves safe because they have all the laws of God, the ordinances and the oracles of God, they're sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And his mention of the righteousness of God in chapter 1, verse 17, is then brought up again right after he's done with this section about how sinful man is. In chapter 3, verse 21, there is a righteousness of God revealed to take care of all of the problems that he has just discussed. In all of this, Paul never forgets the gospel is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And such were some of you, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, but you've been washed and you've been changed and you've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The wrath of God is real, but reconciliation with God is a reality as well. A few years back, there was a Presbyterian 
church, a committee that was putting together a hymnal called Glory to God Hymnal. And they were compiling hymns to be placed in it. And one of the hymns they wanted to put in it was Christ Alone. But they wanted to change some of the original lyrics that were found in that particular hymn. Just a phrase. On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they wanted to change it to on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, that's a good phrase. The love of God was magnified. I love it. It's good. And to, to their defense, they were actually just using what had been changed four years before and published in a Baptist hymnal. So they went to the authors, Stuart Townen and Keith Getty, and said, can we do this? And the authors said, No. But it's already been published before. And they said, well, they never asked us and we wouldn't have approved of it then and we're not going to approve of it now. The religious professor who was chairing the committee said, people think that we've taken the wrath of God out of the hymnal. That's not the case. It's all over the hymnal. The issue is the word satisfied. And one of the reverends on the committee said, some fans of the song will be disappointed with the words, uh, but the words of the song don't work. That lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. But then he said this, the cross is not the instrument of God's wrath. My friend, it is. For when Jesus died on the cross, it was not for his own sin but for ours. And a penalty had to be paid, which was the just righteousness of a holy God who cannot condone rebellion and sin. And when his son became a sin offering, he turned his back on him and unleashed his judgment. And the word satisfied is a good word. Because on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And had it not been satisfied, you and I could not be saved. And so, as horrible as this doctrine of the wrath of God appears to be, it's because our sin is even more horrible. And holiness has found a way to save us and still be righteous. Let's pray. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, unending. It shall forevermore endure. Father, we cannot ignore what you have declared so many times in your word. Let us not try to change the word to our opinion, but may we change our hearts to your revelation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.